this past week, actually, I've been at, uh, at Camp Kakwa, where I was able to speak there. So this is my uh, 11th message in seven days, which is, uh, which is exciting. It means I'm, I'm in a groove right now. So we're just going to keep riding that, that groove. Uh, and so also because I've been at camp uh, all week, uh, I already apologize that like all my stories are from camp for this message. Uh, but they're great stories, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, you don't need to apologize. I don't need to apologize for that? Okay, good. I just, there's not a lot of variety in the stories uh, this week uh, from me. Um, but we're going to be talking about Elijah, and uh, yeah, I, I'm just coming off, I'm just going to go back to week before we get into that. Uh, it was a great week. We had uh, 11 kids dedicate their lives to Christ for the first time, uh, and six rededicate. So we had... Uh, a great time out there, and so we continue to pray for them and continue to pray for the counselors out there, including our very own Evan, who's been out there all summer and is still, and he's gearing up for their mini camp uh, this week with all the, the little ones coming out for a few days of camp. So uh, keep him in his prayer, your prayers and the rest of the staff out there as well. So we're continuing our series this summer on Elijah, uh, and last week, uh, the epic battle that the last few chapters had been setting up in the book of Kings has uh, finally occurred. Yahweh and Elijah faced off against Baal and his 450 prophets, and Yahweh and Elijah recorded a resounding victory. And when someone wins such a great victory, they usually have a great celebration, a victory party, or maybe a parade through the city. But this morning, we're going to find that Elijah is fleeing for his life out of the kingdom of Israel. At one moment, he's on top of the world, defeating a god and 450 of that god's worshipers. He's called down fire from the sky to burn up the sacrifice. And he's ended the multi-year drought. And even before that, he experienced amazing things from God, getting bread and meat from ravens, drinking from a brook when there was no water in the land. And when that brook dried up, he went to Zarephath, where he lived with a widow and her son on an endless supply of flour and oil. And when that son died, he raised that son from the dead. And so Elijah has experienced many cases of God's mighty power. And yet after his greatest victory, he is fleeing into the wilderness. What has happened? So we're turning this morning to 1 Kings 19 in our Bibles or on our Bible devices. Uh, If you don't have either of those things, it'll be up on the screen here for you. And so we're going to go through the chapter of 1 Kings 19 this morning, starting out in verse 1. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah, May the gods strike me and even kill me, if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. 
Two weeks ago, Wally talked about how Elijah was just your normal human being like you and me, but God had used him powerfully and he can use us in those ways as well. So the first couple of chapters, we really see this superhuman view of Elijah where he seems super confident, approaching Ahab, telling him there's going to be no rain. God works through him and for him in amazing ways, causing the drought, being fed by ravens, living off flour and oil that doesn't end, calling fire from the sky, ending that drought. But now we see Elijah in all his humanness. In what should be a moment of great victory, Elijah becomes depressed over a death threat. No action has been taken against him. It's just been some words from a defeated queen. One moment he's on top of the world, next moment he's sitting under a broom tree in the desert asking God to just let him die. And this is why I love the Old Testament. It's very real to our human experience. We have our highs and our lows and sometimes those lows come right after our greatest highs just as Elijah's low is here. The story has a realness to it. Just because you've had a powerful experience with God doesn't mean that life is all rainbows and roses and unicorns forever. And it doesn't mean that when life is in those rainbow, roses, and unicorn moments that it won't be immediately followed by a deep low. And so my first camp illustration is right now. An example of this is summer camp. You spend a week at camp, whether it's Kakwa where I was, or Camp Bob on the island where the Sumners just were, or any other Bible camp, you are in this kind of bubble. You're removed from the world and you're living in a community for a week or so that is just a great example of what the church is to be. Kids experience God. They constantly hear about God from their counselors and, and speakers and staff all week long. They sing songs and worship God. They have all these activities. They feel uh, the love of God, both from God himself and through the counselors, and they have this great spiritual high. And then the week ends, and they go home. And eventually, real world starts settling in. You're not in that bubble separated from everything uh, from everything else. And the, the spiritual high starts to fade down. And you start wondering whether that thing that you experienced, God that you experienced during that week ever really happened or if it was real. And some of these kids go home to broken homes and broken families and immediately after this great spiritual high, they crash into a great low. Living a life following God doesn't mean that life's always going to be high. It will include some deep lows. And Elijah is experiencing this right now. And so Elijah speaks out his desire to die to God and God's response is beautiful. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree, but as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more or the journey will be too much for you. You see how beautiful this is? Elijah has seen and done amazing things for God. 
God's dried up the land for several years. And yet Elijah still had water. Elijah still had food from ravens. He was provided for along with a widow and her son with an unending oil and flour. And God worked through him to raise up that son. He called fire down from heaven and God sent down fire from heaven to burn up the sacrifice. If there was anyone who knew God's power and provision, it was Elijah. And yet he is terrified, unsure of God, and is in a deep depression wishing for death. And God doesn't get offended. He doesn't get offended that Elijah has seemingly forgotten everything that he has done for him. He doesn't say, you remember all those things, those ravens, that brook, that flower and oil that didn't stop, that widow's son that you raised, that great ball of fire that came down from earth? Get over it. You have work to do. No, God doesn't say that. Instead, God sits with them and comforts him and encourages him. When we are depressed and down from life's struggles, we sometimes need someone to sit with us, let us sleep, remind us to eat and drink, maybe even give us a meal. And God makes sure this happens for Elijah. He has an angel sit with Elijah. He lets Elijah sleep, and he makes sure that Elijah eats and drinks and rests. Elijah has been through a lot. He's seen a lot of amazing things, but he needs rest. He is burnt out. He's depressed. He's afraid. And God doesn't say there's so much to do. Get up and get going. He lets Elijah rest. He lets Elijah weep and cry so that he can heal. But he doesn't leave Elijah alone to weep and cry. He sits alongside him. He isn't our taskmaster trying to get us to do more and more, but wants us to take those times to rest, to refuel, to heal, and to prepare for our next journey. He sits with us in our lows. And so he sits with Elijah, and Elijah rests and refuels. So he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night, but the Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Eliza replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. So Elijah travels to Sinai. Elijah's command was to confront King Ahab about his Baal worship, and he's done that. But it didn't have the longer-term results that Elijah had expected and hoped for. The people were still worshiping other gods. Ahab and Jezebel were still in power, and now they were trying to kill him. He had fulfilled the task that God sent him to do, and it seemed like it was a failure. And now he didn't know what God's will for his life was, so he headed to the place where he knew God was, and that was Mount Sinai the place where God had come and met Moses face to face. So Elijah travels for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai in order to try to find out what God's will for his life is. Was all that God had for him to confront King Ahab? And if so, that didn't seem very useful. Things didn't seem to really change. There's just 450 less Baal worshipers in Israel now. And he didn't see that as being particularly useful or long-lasting. 
Perhaps that's part of what led to his depression. Was there more that God had in store for him? So Elijah arrives at the mountain. God asks him why he is there. And he asks this to open up the floor for Elijah to pour out his heart. He doesn't want Elijah to come with vows and vines and try to be uh, all politically correct, trying not to offend uh, a God who may be angry or jealous because that's not who God is. He just wants Elijah to pour out his heart. His calling seems to have been a failure. He is a wanted man and he feels utterly alone. So God says, I'm going to pass by you so you can experience my presence. Israelite memories go back to Exodus when Moses is on that same mountain meeting with God, getting the law from God, and Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. And so God covers Moses' eyes and walks past and then uncovers his eyes just as the last little edge of God's glory is disappearing from view. And Moses' face glows for weeks. And now on this same mountain, Elijah is sitting and God is saying, I'm going to show you my presence. He's about to experience God's glory. So Elijah sits in a cave and he hears this rushing noise and the dust starts getting kicked up into the air and the wind starts getting stronger and stronger and larger and larger pieces of rock are falling off of the mountain. Perhaps he feels like the mountain is leaning over underneath this windstorm and yet God isn't in the windstorm. So next there's a rumbling that's occurring and the ground starts to tremor and the walls start to shake and the roof feels like it's going to collapse as more rocks start falling all around Elijah. Maybe he's afraid that this cave is going to collapse on him as this great earthquake shakes the mountain. But God wasn't in the earthquake. So now there's a great roaring glow and intense heat strikes Elijah and he feels this wave of heat overcome him as this great fire starts eating and consuming its way in the mountain and yet God wasn't in the fire and then there's a gentle refreshing breeze that brushes Elijah's dusty and ash covered cheek and in that breeze Elijah hears a whisper And he stands up and goes out to the mouth of the cave. Why this display of power on the part of God? Elijah wasn't questioning God's power. He had seen plenty of God's power. He had done everything that God had told him to do. And it was in great power. But he was questioning God's purposes. God did all these great things of power in Elijah's life and yet nothing seemed to change. Israel was still unfaithful to God. Jezebel was still dead set on killing him and he was all alone. It's God's reorienting Elijah. Elijah had seen miracle after miracle performed by God. And he may have come to believe that this is the way that God normally operates. In the Old Testament, a windstorm and an earthquake and a great fire are all symbols of God's wrath and judgment. 
And all of these are paraded before Elijah, but God's not in any of them. God is saying to Elijah, your expectation, expectation of my usual way of working is completely wrong. You think that I solve problems primarily through wrath and punishment, but my utmost desire isn't to pour out wrath and punishment. My primary way of acting isn't windstorms and earthquakes and great fires. I solve problems through grace. I use small things, gentle things, to bring about the biggest changes. Who I am is best represented by the small, gentle, refreshing breeze that caresses your cheek, the breeze that brings refreshment to your body. And I got to just spend an amazing week seeing that gentle breeze of God's grace work its way through camp. I saw it in kids coming to me who had questions about God and faith that they were afraid to express for a long time because they were afraid they were going to be judged and deemed bad Christians. And they were able to come into an atmosphere where they felt free to ask those questions and you could see that grace in their face as they start getting at least a start to some of those answers and being told that questions are good. Keep asking questions. You saw as kids from broken families or kids who had just recently lost loved ones or kids who had friendships implode sat around a campfire weeping the tears that kick off that process of healing and God's grace sits right next to them taking the form of a camp counselor who has given up their summer for these moments, sitting next to them, weeping and grieving and praying and putting their arms around them. These are the small ways of grace that God likes to use, how he usually works. And Elijah had just experienced this as he sat underneath the broom tree asking for death. God graciously instead allows him to sleep and gives him food to eat and water to drink. So now perhaps Elijah is thinking that's all well and good, God, but it still seems like your plans have failed. It still seems like you have been defeated because Elijah repeats his protest again. I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down their altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And God knows the root of Elijah's problem. He's already addressed two of Elijah's issues. The broken covenant and Jezebel's desire to kill him by saying that he hasn't failed, but is working in the way he usually operates, in grace, in the small things. Elijah has experienced God's power. He knows that God can protect him. He protect him from starvation and dehydration by providing food for him and water for him. He's seen God raise someone from the dead. He knows God's power. He knows God's protection. But Elijah feels completely and utterly alone. And that is the root of Elijah's problems. He feels like he's all by himself. God sends his angel to comfort and feed Elijah as he sits depressed under the broom tree. And God, being in that gentle breeze, caressing his cheek is to show him, Elijah, you're not utterly alone because God is with you. But God understands and knows that even being told and even knowing and understanding that God is always with you isn't always enough. 
And some of you may be shocked to hear a pastor saying that sometimes knowing God is always with you isn't enough, but that is what the Bible says. We weren't just created to be in relationship with God. We were also created to be in relationship with other people. During the creation of Adam in Genesis, God says, it is not good for man to be alone. Adam wasn't completely, utterly alone. He was with God. Him and God worked together to uh, name all the animals and bring them forth. Adam wasn't completely alone. God was with him always. But still, God looks and says, it's not good for Adam to be alone. So he creates Eve. And it's only after he creates Eve, only after he creates someone to be in relationship with Adam as well, that he says it is very good. We are created to be in relationship with God and with other people. So God gets right to the root of Elijah's fear, his loneliness. Go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram, then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel, then anoint Elisha, Elisha, this is the problem I had. I always said Elisha, and I just learned recently that's not how it's pronounced. Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazael will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape from Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others who have not bowed down to Baal or kissed him. So God says, you have come to find out what my will for you is now. I want you to go anoint these three people. Anoint two kings and a prophet to um, succeed you. And so how do we know that the root of Elijah's fear was uh, loneliness? Is he doesn't do the first two things. He doesn't anoint two kings. It says anoint Hazael, then anoint Jehu and Elisha. But he skips to step three and goes straight to Elisha and anoints him to be a prophet and brings him on as his assistant. So we see that Elijah felt completely and utterly alone. And God says, you're not completely and utterly alone. I'm with you. And there's others who haven't worshipped Baal. And I'm going to give you a friend, a co-prophet, to work with you. Life is full of highs and lows. Following Christ doesn't guarantee you non-stop highs. It doesn't guarantee you that there will never be any lows. But it does guarantee that there will be comfort. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. God provides Elijah with comfort when he's at rock bottom, depressed and wishing to die under a broom tree. Elisha provides comfort for Elijah, knowing that he is not utterly alone. So perhaps you're in a low right now. You're feeling down and out. You aren't sure what God's will is for you. You feel lost, without direction, defeated. And God wants to bring you comfort. He sits with you, mourns with you, weeps with you, and puts his arms around you. Perhaps you feel utterly alone, and maybe you feel guilty for feeling alone because you know that God is always with you, and yet you still feel alone. But God understands that. He knows that you were created to be in relationship with him and with other people because he created you. That's why when Jesus comes 
and he's about to ascend, he encourages his disciples to stick together. And the disciples naturally go out and they start planting churches so that people can be in relationship with each other as well. Jericho Ridge is a place where you aren't alone because you're surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ. One of our core values is an authentic community. It's okay to not be okay. And that means when you feel alone, you can express that to people and they will come alongside you to show you that you're not alone. They will weep with you if you're weeping. They will celebrate with you if you're celebrating. They will put an arm around you and lift you up in prayer. And a good step for you today might be praying with someone. A good step towards healing and comfort could be reaching out to someone. So as the worship team is going to come up and lead us in praise through song, there are going to be prayer response people on the sides that are willing to pray for you to show you that you're not alone. If you're feeling utterly alone and depressed and down and out and defeated, these people will be on the side to pray for you and lift you up and make sure that you are not alone and walk alongside you. And maybe you're sitting in your seat and it's a little too much to come up to the sides to find one of the prayer response teams. Reach out to the people around you. Their core value is authentic community. And so every person who calls Jericho home wants to be a part of that authentic community. So reach out to someone maybe that's just around you and say, I'm not doing okay. And have them pray 